this morning. As I mentioned last week, in chapter 18 and chapter 19 of John, we're getting into the darkest chapters of the book. And so these sermons are going to be very different than they have been the past few months. This one is no exception. In this one, we're going to take more of a uh, historical and exegetical approach, meaning we're going to look into the text and pull out what the text has for us. There's a lot of historical details here. And unlike what we normally do, I'm going to put all of the application at the end. Because a lot of this application will come from looking at this passage as a whole. And this is one of those texts that causes some people a lot of problems and causes the world a lot of problems because it seems like the gospel writers are at least confused and maybe at worst contradictory. Because if you read uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account of this, it seems very different when you look at it on a detailed level from John's. And so it's important to recognize that the gospel writers are not confused. This is a very busy period. This is a night where there's a lot of things going on. And so we're going to look at some of those differences briefly, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to give us a synopsis when we get there. But we have to understand as we read through the Gospels, and I encourage you to, each Gospel writer is writing with a specific purpose. Each Gospel writer has details that they are including because they have a, a particular perspective, uh, they have a particular set of influences, but they also have a particular purpose. And so what happens a lot of times, and if you, if you read a lot of narrative books, or even if you watch a lot of movies, how do you handle when two consecutive sets of events are happening? Do you go for straight chronology and, and, and jump back and forth to make sure that every second is accounted for? Or do you deal with this theme? And then you take a step back and deal with, with this theme. Or do you find some other way to tell the story? I mean, we, when we watch movies, they have to use flashbacks because they can't always give every detail that's happening at the same time because we only have one set of eyes and we only have one screen. And in and, and this purpose, in front of us, we only have one line of text. You cannot, in the same line, talk about two things that are going on at the same time. And so uh, what we're going to see this morning is that John... He is certainly true to the narrative, but he takes a thematic approach. John is more concerned with what is most important. John wants you to know the theological implications of what are going on. Luke is very technical. Uh, Matthew is very historical. Mark is just straight to the point. John comes in with rich theology, and John is going to tie together everything that he's talked about up until this point. And so we are going to be in chapter 18, but we're actually going to begin in chapter 13. And if you're ready, we're going to read through the rest of it. No. I was, going to see, I was just waiting to see some people's faces. There's some big eyes out there. No, we're going to look at three verses in chapter 13, and we're going to come back to chapter 18. So this is important to remember, because at the end of chapter 13, verse 36, Jesus is going to predict Peter's denial. Now this is, whatever it was, three or four months ago for us. This is a couple hours ago for them. This just happened. This is after he institutes the Lord's Supper, which we're going to partake of this morning, after Judas uh, runs out of the room, and they all are hearing the last words of Jesus. And Jesus says, uh, back up in, in 13, You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So Peter, the devoted servant who loves his Lord, picks up in verse 36 of chapter 13. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but 
you will follow afterward. This is important. We're going we're gonna to get into this. Again, this is just a few hours before our text in chapter 18. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? Peter would do great in our instant gratification culture. I will lay down my life for you. Oh, how Peter is going to remember those words. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, fast forward. This is in the evening after dinner. Now we're going to find ourselves probably after midnight. Chapter 18, picking up in verse, we'll start with verse 12. Now remember, last week, Jesus teaches them. We go through chapter 14, 15, 16 of him teaching them, 17 of him praying, and then they go out into the garden. And Jesus goes out to pray. They keep falling asleep. He tells them to stay awake. They don't. And then Judas comes with a band of Jewish soldiers and Roman soldiers to arrest him. Peter pulled out his sword, cuts off the ear of the servant. Jesus puts it back on and says, I must take this cup. Are you going to stop me from doing what the Father has prepared for me? And so now he lets happen what the Father has determined to happen, and we pick up here in verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside of the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Weird way that sentence is phrased. He says, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and the temples where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster, the rooster crowed. Let's pray. Lord, what a privilege it is to have your name on our lips. The words we sung this morning. Oh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Our King of love, our holy 
God, the only holy God who took on flesh. And it is in Christ alone that we can know God and come before God, our God, that we can even speak of your name in the same breath with us is incredible. And it is because of Christ alone who did not open his mouth, who did not fight back, who did not seek his own glory, but to glorify the Father in heaven so that we may be redeemed through him. And as we look at this text this morning, Lord, I pray that you pierce us to our heart every time we are arrogant and look down at Peter. Because how many times are we guilty of the same thing? Without Christ, without the Holy Spirit working within us, we would do worse than Peter every time. Lord, I pray that this text this morning would bring to the forefront your faithfulness, your goodness, your righteousness, and our frailty, and our weakness, and our inability. So that you receive all the glory, and all the praise, and all the honor. And when we think about your grace, when we think about your mercy, we have no choice but to cry out, Hallelujah, only a holy God. And it is in the name of our God, Father, Son, and Spirit that we pray. Amen. All right, so let's pick up in verse 13. So first, they led him to Annas. Now, John is the only one who mentions this particular detail, and we're going to get there later. I'm going to bring a synthesis of the Gospels together. Uh, And so John brings this in as an eyewitness and as someone who's trying to complement and complete the entire narrative of, of what went on. And so, first, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. One of those things that I always gloss over, and every time I read Arthur Pink's commentary, I feel like I'm an idiot because I did not see that. So when he sees, first they led him to Annas. He picked up on all of the, the symbolism here, and this is interesting because he mentions that every lamb before it was slaughtered, was brought to the priest. And then when we think about geographically what's happening here, because we're not from Jerusalem, we don't understand what it means to be led from the Garden of Gethsemane into the palace of the high priest. What happens is the Mount of Olives, where Jesus went to pray, there was a meadow under, at the bottom of the mountain, the foot of the mountain. And the brook Kidron that we talked about last week, the dark waters, is what feeds and floods this meadow where the sheep graze. And so this was just to the east of the temple. And so when they would bring the sheep in to be sacrificed, they would come in through the sheep gate. It is the best and the most direct way to get to the temple, but also the most direct way to get to the upper city where the high priest's palace was. So the Lamb of God goes from the meadow, the grazing land, over the brook Kidron, the dark waters, and is led in through the sheep gate, past the temple, where the appropriate sacrifices will be given to the house of the high priest, and he does not open his mouth. He is led like a lamb to a slaughter, does not speak, does not fight back. And he is brought to Annas. Now, his name comes up a couple times, comes up in Luke and comes up in Acts. Uh, this is an interesting guy. So as I start reading up on him, he is the patriarch of a high priestly family. 
He was high priest from A.D., uh, what was it, 6 to 15. We're in about A.D. 30 right now. So he was high priest for a good, my math is right, a good nine years. But he had a lot of influence because five of his sons became high priests and one of his grandsons. And so he had this dynasty, as Josephus describes it, that goes on for for up to 50 years, where his family is front and center and uh, in the life of Jerusalem. But also the, the, the Talmud, which is Jewish scriptures or Jewish writings outside of our scriptures, paint an interesting picture of this man. They say he was rich, that he was corrupt, and he was conniving. Even among the Jews, he was called the father of a family of snakes. He, they called him the one who hisses. Because he was always up to something. And so he wasn't currently the high priest. But just like in our culture, once you become president, you are always present. You are always addressed as Mr. President. He is always addressed as high priest because we're going to see here that he's addressed as high priest. But he's very influential. And so from what we understand, this is, this is the guy who you really got to get approval for. This is the godfather. Now, if you know the story... You know, Michael may be in charge, but you still got to go get Vito's blessing and kiss the ring. This is, this is Vito sitting in his tomato garden waiting for you to ask the, the blessing to move forward. And so this man, Annas, was notorious in his day. And so John brings this in. And it's interesting, too, that we're going to see in, in Acts, if you read forward, that Peter and John are going to go before him later. But that's too much. Um, so what we're going to get to see here is this kind of informal uh, inquisition before Annas. And we're going to pick up here in verse 14. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Um, now if you remember Caiaphas, back in chapter 11, Caiaphas is the one who kind of makes sense of this whole Jesus thing. And I want us to, to go back there because John alludes to it, and this is important for our whole story. In verse 14, he says, It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So let's look at that in context, John chapter 11. If you move back, I want to pick up a little earlier and point out some details here that will be helpful for us this morning. So John 11, starting in verse 47. Remember, this is not long ago either. It's probably just a few weeks prior. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. See, hear the motivation? If he keeps going, they're going to believe in him. And they're going to take away our place and our nation. What about us? But one of them, Caiaphas, stepson of the, of the hissing one, who was, high priest with, uh, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nice guy, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now what is he saying here? He's saying, let's kill Jesus. So we don't lose the rest of our nation. So we don't lose our power. Everything will stay status quo. It's better that he die than we lose everything else to Rome. He's thinking purely in a selfish manner. But you can also read that another way. 
It is better that one man should die than the whole nation should perish. And so John knows that prophetically this is substitutionary atonement language. That through the blood of one man, of one final sacrifice, the many will be made righteous. He will take on their sin. They will take on his righteousness. And the nation, true Israel, spiritual Israel, will be saved. And this is what John explains here. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, even wicked high priests can prophesy true things the way the Lord works. And that year he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Here's the key. And not for the nation only but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This is a clear message that Israel, true Israel, those who trust in the Lord will be saved, but not just those who have Abraham's blood coursing through their veins. It is those who have Abraham's faith coursing through their heart. All of them, everyone scattered abroad, one will die for them all. This does not originate with, with Paul. John knew this very well. Verse 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Of course, he threatened their business, he threatened their livelihood, he threatened their power, and of course they want to put him to death. And so Caiaphas, he planted this murderous seed. You know, he's, he's this conniving opportunist, yet he's used by God as a prophet, And so let's pick up back here in, in chapter 18. So one man should die for the people. Now we pick up back in the action. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Uh, here, another disciple is mentioned three times. We don't know who that other disciple is. There is a lot of debate with this one. Uh, the majority opinion thinks that it's John, and I think it's John for, for many reasons. Uh, we'll look at a couple of those, but that doesn't really matter. Uh, that... It's, John is giving us details here about what happened, and Peter is, is the focus. So why I think it's John, one, John never mentions his own name. He always mentions other people by name, like he does here. John gives the names of other people who we do not get in the other Gospels. Only someone who was there would, would know this. And there's also little details, and, and then when they ask Peter, they, are, are you his disciple also? As if knowing he's keeping company with John, my speculation, but either way. So John, or excuse me, Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought him in. Uh, from my days in the club world, I know this happens. You've got to go to the doorman. If, if, you, if you can't get in, you've got to go let your friends in too. And this is what happens. So, but we're, we're, we're missing the picture. Because when we hear, oh, the, the courtyard of the high priest. This guy's got a nice house. He's got a big front yard. Uh, this guy's got a palace. Now, we don't know exactly what this looked like, but it'll be up on the screen. Um, this is a model in Jerusalem of the high priest's house. This is a model that exists today. So this is what they think it is. And if you look at the doors at the front, the, the house in the middle and the, the fire pits on the side, this guy could throw big parties. And this guy liked to show you how powerful and how rich he was. So Jesus gets drawn in and he's got to be dragged or led through the city and brought to the high priest's house and brought in. And there's, there's servants keeping watch at the entrance. And so one of the disciples goes in and another one, Peter, is left outside 
Someone's got to go get Peter and bring him in. And so this is what happens, and he's brought into this, this courtyard. And so it makes sense when you hear them building fires, you can see that in the open air, you can build a fire and still hear what's going on. Uh, so we'll pick up in verse 17. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? You get a little glimpse of what it's like to read Greek. They're, they're translating this directly from the Greek. That's how a lot of these questions come up, and we, we, we put them in nice and neat English language. Um, and he says, I am not. Now this we can gloss over, because in each of the other Gospels, Peter responds a different way. Man, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know this man. But here he says, I am not. Do you remember what Jesus said last week? Jesus said, ego a me, I am. Peter says, uk a me, I am not. John juxtaposes this twice. The I am stands faithful and true. The I am not lies to save his own tale. Are you also one of this man's disciples? He is the I am. I am the I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal file because it was cold. Fire. Because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Now John is a master storyteller and the details that he includes. So Peter distances himself from the Savior verbally and then physically attaches himself to his Savior's enemies at the fire. He And he stands with them. Don't gloss over this detail. Because also in the garden, there was another disciple who was standing with his enemies. Judas came in, and he was standing there with the ones who were going to arrest Jesus. Now, those same people who had just arrested him, Peter cut off one of their ears, and now he's standing by the fire with them, warming himself, standing with them. And the coldness of denying Christ seeks to warm itself by the campfires of the world. And Jesus, or Jesus, Peter, is taking comfort, trying to fit in with the enemies of his Savior. And so this is a warning to us. As we read this, if you try and warm yourself, comfort yourself by the campfires of the world, don't be surprised if you are tempted to please them, to sound like them, to say things that will appeal to them. If you stand in company with those who are enemies of your Savior, you will begin to think and look and speak like them, and you will be tempted to say things to please them instead of God. And this is where Peter finds himself around this fire. So now, John is kind of panning back and forth. All right, this is what happens. Jesus gets led from the garden, goes into the palace, Peter's outside, and now this informal trial begins. Verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teachings. This is an important detail here. Again, the high priest still referring to Annas, who still holds the title. But John is always intentional. He questions him about his disciples and his teaching, about his disciples and his doctrine. Why does he mention disciples first? Annas does not really care about the teaching. He wants to know how successful Jesus is. Who's following you? How many? Why are they following you? 
Are you just some teacher or are you trying to take my spot? And so he, he, he first digs into who is following Jesus. And then he asks him about his teaching. Because if they believe in him, they will threaten our place. And they will threaten our nation. They will threaten our power. If they believe his teaching, if they follow him, they will threaten my power. But look how Jesus responds to Annas in verse 20. He asks him two things. Tell me about your doctrine, or tell me about your disciples, and tell me about your doctrine. All right, Bible students, look at repeated words here. I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temples where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. What does Jesus emphasize here? I'm the one on trial here. You want to pick a fight, pick it with me. I spoke. I'm the teacher. Come for me. And so in one breath, he stands up boldly to the accusations against himself and makes them prove their case, but also protects his disciples. He doesn't even let them come into the conversation. He told them to flee in the garden. Remember, let these men go. That is the gospel. Let them go. Take me. And he stands before them. I have. I have. I have. Your beef is with me. Let's talk about this right here. All the disciples scatter. Peter is denying him right now. And Jesus won't even let them be brought into the conversation. That's how much their master loves them. So let's work through his, his statements here. I have spoken openly to the world. Jesus has never hidden from them. I taught publicly. I've made my presence known. If you had a concern for my teaching, there's plenty of opportunity. We see through all the Gospels, the Pharisees, the, the, the scribes, the chief priests, they question them him themselves and they send people to question him you had plenty of opportunity he was teaching that week in jerusalem i was teaching in the temple a few days ago why didn't you bring this up then he says i spoke openly to the world in the presence of everyone where were you the world heard my message why didn't you and he says i have taught in the synagogues. So we don't know much about Jewish culture, but you had the, the, the temple, which was for corporate worship. The temple was where all the, 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 the festivals, the big gatherings, where the sacrifices were brought, where the offerings were brought. This was, this was kind of central uh, of Jerusalem, and everyone would go there. And so this is the, the center of life. Everything is centered around the temple, even though it's on the side of the city, but theologically speaking, and as far as practice speaking, everything centered around the temple. But the synagogues were the little neighborhood churches, if you will, where the Sabbath services would be held, where people would stand up, or rabbis, respected teachers would stand up, and they would explain Scripture. And then throughout the week, the younger ones would be discipled by the, by the rabbis. So this is where the real teaching and discipleship went on. So we have big worship in the temple, but the, the daily discipleship goes on in the synagogues. So he didn't say one. He said, I spoke in the synagogues. There would have been many in the city. Jesus made his presence known to his people. He said, I came for the lost sheep of Israel. He opened the scriptures and he pointed to himself. And he did this again and again in all of the synagogues and in the temple repeatedly. 
And it's laughable that Annas would ask him about his doctrine. Jesus said, I have spoken to synagogues and the temples. I have done nothing in secret. I've not been hiding. I don't operate at night like you do. This whole thing is going on in secret. I have done my teaching boldly before everyone. I don't have anything to hide. But yet you're hiding this whole illegal trial that's going on here. Just like us, in Jewish culture, they had the right to a fair trial. They had the right to be accused, uh, you know, excuse me, to be accused by witnesses. Now, they had the right not to incriminate themselves. A lot of things that, that we have in our justice system were in place then. All this is being done under the cover of darkness. And Jesus says, I haven't done anything in secret. Can you say the same? Verse 21. Why do you ask me? I love this. Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. There is no shortage of people in Jerusalem who know of Jesus and his teaching. Why are you asking me? You could have asked anyone. There is plenty of opportunity for this. And there are plenty of witnesses. And they still exist. And I love how both here and in the garden, they are the aggressors. They come after Jesus, and Jesus puts them on the defensive. In the garden, who have you come for? Before Annas, why are you asking me? I taught publicly. You had plenty of opportunity for this. Jesus does not stand down. He does not shy away from his message. He stands before them boldly. And so, of course, there's always someone who's trying to get a promotion. There's always someone who's trying to look good before the guy in charge. And this is our man here in verse 22. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is this how you answer the high priest? I thought, we're going to talk about this more later in our application, but there's some irony here that you are disrespecting the final high priest. You are slapping him because he offended the corrupt one. I mean, the, the irony here is, 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 is thick. So Jesus answered him, again, not losing his composure, putting him on the defensive. If what I said is wrong, bear witness. Call it out. What did I say that is not correct? But if I said what is right, why do you strike me? Of course, there's no answer for this. And of course, Annas is kind of, he knows this has run its course. This is not going anywhere. So now Annas, verse 24, sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So here's where the Gospels can get a little confusing. So I want to kind of bring us in and just give us a summary of what's going on. After hours this week, uh, reading all four and trying to make sense of them, here's what we got. So... Again, each one of them is giving us little details, so I want to give you a timeline and then, and then who, who talks about it, just to give, give you a sense. And I encourage you, read through this. Now, when we approach difficult passages in the Bible, it's easy just, to just give up and, and move on without actually considering it. Consider it. Read these. And then you'll, 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 you'll get a sense of what's going on here, but I want to help you out. So, first, we got Jesus in the garden. We all, they all agree that Jesus went to the garden. We talked about last week there was a prayer earlier that John does not mention where he prays to the Father where blood comes out of his forehead and he's, and he's telling the, the disciples to pray as well so they don't fall into temptation. And then uh, he gets arrested. They all agree on that. This is a long night. And so he is taken from the garden. He is led to Annas 
first. John's the only one who mentions this. Then uh, from Annas, he sent to Caiaphas, which we see here in verse 24. Both Matthew and Mark mention this. So these are both informal trials. And there's another law in Jewish custom that says a man cannot be tried on the same day that he is arrested. So they're using a bit of a loophole here because this is not a formal trial. So first he goes to Annas, then he goes to Caiaphas, both by cover of night. By the time the rooster crows for the second time, it's about 3 a.m. And so we're getting that in just, just a moment. And so Peter's denials are stretched over probably a span of three hours or so, midnight to, to, to 3 a.m. Luke tells us that there's uh, a, a period of time in between the, second, the first and second denial and at least an hour in between the second and third. So Peter's denials do not happen back to back. And we'll talk about that in just a moment in this last section. And then Luke brings um, in this other detail, that at daybreak. So we've got Annas by himself, and then we've got Caiaphas with some of the, the high priests and the elders. And Luke tells us all of the assembly comes together at daybreak. So now they're technically, according to the law, they arrested him yesterday, and daybreak starts the new day. So now they're going to try him publicly in front of the entire assembly. And this happens right at daybreak. Because Luke also tells us that he's going to be sent to Pilate very early in the morning. So this is a rushed process. Everybody kind of following me? So this is kind of what's happened. And so each of them gives complementary details here, and John is rounding all this out. And so now, the other, all the other Gospels have lumped together, together Peter's denials. They all have them in succession. But when you read Luke's account, there's some time in between, in between each one of these. So they put them together because they, they're using a particular theme of focusing on Peter's denial. But John juxtaposes Peter's denial with Christ's faithfulness and then Peter's denial again. He sandwiches Christ's faithfulness and Christ's loyalty with uh, Peter's unfaithfulness and, and, and Peter's unloyalty. And so, unloyalty? Disloyalty. So, cutting back to Peter in verse 25. Okay, so this is what's going on with Peter. We're going to go over here what's going on with Jesus and Annas. He sends him over to Caiaphas. And so the other thing we, we, we don't know here is, were, was there more than one high priestly palace? Uh, that palace is big enough for a lot of people. Probably what happened here is that either Annas still stays there because he's the honorary high priest, or we know he's in on the plot, and he can't sleep because when you're, when you're plotting to murder someone, it's kind of hard to go to sleep. So he's there waiting for the soldiers to bring him in. So most likely, he, Jesus is brought into the palace on one side of the courtyard. He's interviewed by Annas with all the hearers while Caiaphas and the other elders and the other, uh, the other chief priests come together. And then they bound Jesus again and send him over to Caiaphas. The other side of the house, the other, the, the other courtyard. So all this can happen in the same palace. Now, again, we don't know what's going on here, uh, but there's, there's many plausible ex explanations. So a lot of people get caught up in verse 24. No need to. Everybody with me? Trust me, this is a lot more confusing on like Thursday. So hopefully this, this is clear now. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. Again, standing with them in company with those who hate his enemy. So they said to him, now, when you read the other gospel accounts, you get names. Um, the servant girl said this. Another man said this. John says they. Again, we could read over this. There's a lot of people asking Peter. From what we understand, Peter's getting grilled here. I mean, in a matter of a few hours, you speak like a Galilean. You look familiar. There's something up with you. So John says that they are inquiring of him. 
They, the servants, the officers, the soldiers, the onlookers, everyone who has come for this thing. So let's just set the, the scene real quick. This is an informal, illegal trial, probably well after midnight by now, at the house of the most prominent Jew in Jerusalem, and there's plenty of onlookers, plenty of people hoping to get a glimpse of what's going on, to, to be in on the drama and to be in on the scandal. And this is no different than people today who glue themselves to the TV for the biggest trial or whatever scandal's going on or to see what this report says or, or, or see what this report says. Like, you know, we at best are very curious and at worst are bloodthirsty. Nothing new has changed. People are on the edge of their seat wanting to know what scandal is, is, is going on. And as Vody Wacom says, if you can't say amen to that, you ought to say ouch. Because too many of you are standing by the fire trying to warm yourself by the newest scandal on the news. Turn it off. Side note. Um, and so here we have Peter. He's trying to blend in. He's trying to get a front row seat to the inquisition of his Lord. Now let's not forget here. Peter loves him enough to draw the sword to go to battle for him. But he's scared. He's fearful. And there's, there's an edge and there's a tension here. Jesus is being questioned, but everyone else is being questioned too. And so Peter finds himself in the midst of that, those who are questioning him. And so they ask him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Again, I am not. Same denial from Peter, but he's not getting off that easy. They will not let him off the hook. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Now this is double fear here. So one, he's afraid of being associated with Jesus because he's, he doesn't want whatever fate Jesus has and Peter's acting fearfully here. But also, now there's a witness to his assault. And he's in the home of the high priest whose, ear, whose servant's ear he cut off. So there's this, this extra bit of drama that John adds to this that we don't get uh, from the other Gospels. And then the, the, the fateful moment, Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. So that is climactic, but Luke helps us understand this better. So I want us to turn to Luke. There's one additional detail that really brings this home. So we're going to actually stay in Luke 22 for a minute. You can keep your finger there. Uh, we're going to go back to John and then um, might even hang out there for communion too. So Luke 22. Just at the very end of Luke's whole account of this, verse 60. Look what Luke includes. So Luke 22, starting in verse 60. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. That sounds more like Peter. And immediately, while he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Man, Peter was adamant. Even if everyone else denies you, I won't. I will lay down my life for you. I don't know this guy. And the look at that moment, Jesus catches his eye, and Peter's heart is broken. Peter weeps bitterly. This is emotional, and this is heartbreaking. So that's a great bit of drama that Luke helps us with. Um, 
And there's an, also another helpful piece in that passage. should be on the same page in your Bibles. Look at verse 31. We didn't address this earlier because I think this helps us in our application. So this is how Luke describes the details of Jesus predicting Peter's denial. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. There is a spiritual component that is going on here that Luke grasps onto. Satan demanded to have you. That he might sift you like wheat. We don't understand this. We're not an agrarian culture. But when they would get the, the, the wheat kernels, whatever they're, they're called, um, they would shake them up and they would, they would sift them so all the, all the chaff, all the husks and, every, husks and everything would fall off. This is a violent process where you would shake it and everything that was not needed for sustenance would fly away. And so at the same time, under the sovereignty of God, Satan has a hold of Peter to sift him and demands him. But look what, look what Jesus does here. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And this is beautiful. And when you have turned again, this is repentance language, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Why did Peter fail? Satan demanded it of him. He needed to be sifted. What, in, what was in his life that was not beneficial needed to be thrown out into the wind. But that once he repents he can now encourage his brothers. Peter said, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. So Deshaun asked me a good question this week. He said, well, what's the difference between Judas and Peter then? Because both of them betrayed their Lord in a way. Both of them stood next to his enemies. Here's the difference. Jesus prayed for Peter. Jesus prayed for Peter's faith. Peter belonged to Jesus. That is the only difference. And when Peter realized his sin, unlike Judas, he wept. He was broken over his selfishness, over his fear. And he repented because his Savior, his high priest, intercedes for him. So I want to close with some observations and application. You'll see a spot for it there on, on your notes. And I've titled them all with P's so you can remember them easily. Uh, and I want to walk through this and see what do we observe from this, this text. Peter. First of all, up to this point, no one would describe Peter as fearful. Peter is always the one who is quick to stick his foot in his mouth. He's, he's the one who will scold Jesus. I will never wash your feet. Far be it from me, Lord. He's the one who will pull his sword out at a moment's notice. Peter is going to deny Jesus? Never. This is a great example to us. Beware of your own strength. Beware of the ones who look strong in their own eyes, who, who appear bold. Because on their own, they will easily fall just like Peter did. And if you are strong in your own strength, I guarantee you, you will have to be humbled before the Lord will use you. 
just like he did with Peter. And Peter should also remind us of our own unfaithfulness and how often we have not owned Christ because of our fear of what other people might think of us or our desire for our own comfort. It's just easier if I don't say anything. Be careful of the campfires of the world. If you spend too much time around the campfires of the world and the world begins to associate you with your Savior, you're going to have to struggle with where your allegiance lies. So Peter's a great lesson for that. But this also reminds us of God's great grace and how Christ forgave and used Peter. Remember, Jesus turned his name from Simon to Peter, Cephas or Petros in in Greek, rock. You are going to be a rock in my church. You're going to be an immovable object in my church. But first, you have to be sifted. First, you have to be humbled. First, you have to be broken down so that I may be exalted in your life. This guy, foot and mouth, Peter, yes, you will be a rock in my church, but you must go through this first. And this is the other amazing part of this. Peter failed, and he failed miserably. But he failed in faith. Think about that. Judas betrays Jesus with no faith in him, with no love for him. Even in his love, he failed. How many of us, in our love for Christ, beat ourselves up on how much we fail? Peter failed in faith, but he belongs to Christ. Christ went, for the, went to the cross for him. Christ sheltered him from all of this. <laughs> Nothing can separate him from his love. And in that moment, his Savior interceded for him, prayed for his faith. This should be a great encouragement to us. Because we are saved by our faith in Christ, not our perfect obedience. We are not limited by our last failure. And so many of us carry around our failures and think that that is what defines us. And that is who we are. Peter's identity was not in his last failure. His identity was that he was called by Christ. And his high priest intercedes for him. And that's our next P, prayer. Because while Jesus was told Peter he would pray for him, I will pray that your faith will not fail. And there is no better one praying for you than Jesus. But something we might miss. While, while they were in the garden and Jesus went off to pray, twice he told them to stay awake. He even had to kick Peter, like, Peter, you fall asleep already? I told you to pray so that what? So that you don't fall into temptation. Jesus told him this. Pray. Cry out to the Father like I am. I'm about to take this cup for you, but you're going you're gonna to face temptation for me. So we shouldn't be surprised that Peter failed. Pray so that you don't fall into temptation. Let that be a lesson to us. Let us continually go before the Lord in prayer. Praying that our faith in Christ and our identity in him will be our rock and we will seek to please him and not those around us. The other P, the priests. Thankfully, the people of God are no longer beholden to corrupt, wicked priests. 
but our high priest who went before the corrupt high priest is caring and he's patient and he's forgiving. Our high priest, the Lamb of God, was led to the false high priest of the world to be slaughtered so that he would have the right to be our high priest and so that he could intercede for us. Our high priest, the same one who is praying for Peter not to fall into temptation, knowing full well he would. If you are hidden in him, he is praying for you. He is interceding for you. He lives to intercede for you before the Father. His throne is a throne of grace. That is our high priest. Amen. The other P, persecution. See the great lengths that the world goes to to silence Christ. Everything that they did in the cover of night. Why do we keep thinking we'll be treated any differently? Look what our brothers and sisters in China and all around the world are facing in persecution. Why do we think that things are just going to go well for us and the world's going to love us, but they hated Christ? And here's a lesson. This is how most persecutions and trials happen. If you were brought before a court, it'd be a lot easier to prepare your statement and to write out everything that you're going to say. But more often than not, like Peter, we're going to be persecuted in the court of public opinion. When you're least expecting it, when you don't know that it's coming, you're going to be put on the spot. People are going to start to associate you with Jesus. You're one of his disciples? You don't believe that outdated Bible stuff, do you? You can't be one of those Neanderthals. This is our culture. This is the type of subtle persecution we face. And if you're not ready for it, you're going to be tempted to be just like Peter. And it's going to be a lot easier to say, I don't know that guy. Yeah, I'm not that kind of Christian. I'm not really that kind of Christian. We're a lot nicer brand of Christian. We're not like Jesus. And then the last one is perspective. It's easy to be hard on Peter. It is easy to read through this and like, I wouldn't do that. Peter's such a weakling. But how often have we denied him actively? How often have we shied away from declaring his name because it would mean consequences for us? How often have we avoided difficult conversations or situations because it might be exposed that we're a Christian? I know I have. I have repented this week of how often I am afraid to share the gospel with my friends. Or how often we just try to soften the gospel. To take away the sin and wrath stuff. To just make it an emphasis on Jesus loves you and everything's going to be okay. We are not that different from Peter. But what is different is that we know Peter after the Holy Spirit. We know the boldness of Peter after the Holy Spirit. And that same Spirit that transformed Peter from this wet noodle into a rock lives within us if we are hidden in Christ. And the Gospel is not about our ability to stay faithful, but Christ's faithfulness. The Gospel is not about our last sin, but Christ's death for our sin. Do you believe this?
Do you trust in Jesus for your salvation? Do you know that he is interceding for you? Do you trust that his grace is greater than your last sin? Or are you still trying to be a good enough person to earn God's favor? Because that is not the gospel. The gospel is amazing. It is not about what we do, but what Christ has done. Meditate on that as we prepare to approach his table. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you prepare our hearts, you prepare our minds, that the word that we just heard, coming from your word, that anything that your spirit is doing would, would be accomplished here today. Lord, help me to get out of the way. If anything I said was a stumbling block or, or confusing, forgive your flawed servant, that your will would be done, that your word would be applied to our minds and our hearts, that we would rest in the completed work of Jesus Christ, that we would cry out to the only hope for salvation, that we would cry out to the the, the high priest who intercedes for his beloved. Lord, I pray for those who know you this morning who are still carrying around the burden of their own sin and have not surrendered it to Christ. Pray for those this morning who know you and are afraid to say your name. Give us boldness. Give us confidence that we would stand on the rock of our salvation. Let us know that our Savior has gone before us as our brother and intercedes for us as our high priest. Lord, I also pray for those who do not know you today. Those who are warming themselves by the campfires of the world and just looking on this Jesus of Nazareth, wanting to see what the drama is all about. Lord, I pray that your word would not come back void. That you would transform hearts as you have done from day one. That you would breathe new life into dead people that they would cry out to a Savior. Because it is only by His finished work that they can be saved.